All right. If you have a Bible handy or a phone, I encourage you to open up to Psalm 2, that psalm that Chin read for us earlier. Uh, the reading we just did and just discussed kind of moved us toward the topic of anxiety. And I have a question for us as we begin today. And that is, over the past months leading up to this election, why has there been so much anxiety? Why has there been so much fear? Why has there been so much catastrophizing, even among Christ's followers? And why so much division and strife and conflict, even among Christ's followers, who are in a very real sense, according to God's word, one body of Christ and one temple of the Holy Spirit, one family of God the Father? Why so much splintering and disunity and judgment and su suspicion, even among God's one people? Well, here's what I think it is. We have been focused on the wrong battle, and so we have been rooting for the wrong winner. We have had our eyes on the wrong conflict, and so we have been cheering for and rooting for the wrong victor. And none of that is unusual in history. In fact, our psalm this morning, Psalm 2, was written for times like this. Most Bible interpreters agree that this is a coronation psalm. It's a psalm written for the grand events uh, of the coronation, the installation of a new king, maybe King Solomon, maybe some other Israelite king, like a presidential election today, these coronation ceremonies were moments of transition of power, moments from one administration to another or one regime to another. And in countries which are not stable, healthy democracies, such moments are often filled with anxiety, with worry. Will the transfer of power go smoothly? Will other claimants to the throne concede peacefully? Or will rival claimants gather supporters and stake their own claims to the reins of power, and then we will have conflict and chaos? Also worrisome during a transition of power, like a coronation, was the problem of surrounding nations. Often a kingdom of any size and influence would have some smaller, what, what are called vassals. Uh, that is, the more powerful kingdom would have control of some smaller neighboring peoples or nations on their border whom this stronger nation had conquered or, or coerced into giving it allegiance. And when a king of this more powerful kingdom died and his successor took the throne, often the new king would be young, green, inexperienced, and in some cases would have his hands full internally in his kingdom, establishing his own power, defeating rival claimants to the throne. And so invariably, this would be a great time for smaller neighboring peoples, vassals, to rebel, to throw off the yoke of their overlords. And this is what's envisioned in our psalm right in the opening verses. It's what's described that the surrounding nations are um, saying that they're going to do to the kingdom of Israel. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles? The vassals are seeking to break free. They're gathering together to rebel against the Lord and his anointed, the king of Israel. And so that 
is the situation that this psalm is speaking to. It's speaking to that anxious moment, that uncertain moment of transition of power from one ruler to the next with all the upheavals and the uncertainties that can come with it. It's interesting that those who put together the Psalms, which is the hymn book, the worship manual of God's people, that they put this Psalm, Psalm 2, right at the beginning, because most interpreters agree that Psalms 1 and 2 are the preface or the introduction to the Psalms. Most of the Psalms are prayers, but these first two Psalms aren't so much prayers themselves, Uh, being directed to God, but are rather there to set the scene um, to remind us of who it is that we're praying to and why we're worshiping. Remember last week we saw that worship corrects our perspective. If we get our eyes off of our circumstances and back onto God, that's what worship accomplishes so that we can see reality clearly The reality that God is good, that God is awesome, and that God is on his throne. It's interesting that of all the Psalms, the organizers of the book of Psalms could choose. They picked this Psalm along with Psalm 1 to get us off on the right track with our worship, to get our perspective reoriented, especially in a time like this when we're anxious, we're maybe fearful, angry, and divided. And here's what this psalm tells us. Here's how it begins to reorient us as we begin to worship, as we begin to pray. It says, if you are anxious and fearful and divided and angry, then you are focused on the wrong battle. And you are supporting the wrong winner. Okay, let me ask you now a different question as we begin to look at this psalm and see how this plays out in the psalm. When was the last time that you were at a pep rally. Maybe it was high school, maybe it was college. Pep rallies are festive, they are loud, they are full of school color and team spirit, face paint, pom-poms, banners, mascots, maybe a brass band. Often on the eve of a big football game, right? And so there are chants, right, with stomping and clapping, like, We've got Chappaqua under our feet, stomp, 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 or something like that. At pep rallies, we use big words. We use words like crush, demolish, destroy. The goal is to get ourselves and our team psyched up. And that's basically what royal coronations were like too, like big pep rallies. Often you'd have a young king, inexperienced, maybe a little intimidated by all that was now on his shoulders. He's got neighboring peoples maybe rebelling against him, maybe rival claimants to the throne plotting right around him. And so often one of the first things this poor wet behind the ears guy has to do is go to war to defend his claim to the throne, to secure his throne and his kingdom. And so this psalm, Psalm 2, is like part of a pep rally to encourage him. And here's the thing about pep rallies. Victory seems so sure during them. Our adversaries don't stand a chance. We'll crush them. We'll destroy them. But when we actually get out onto the football field, it can very quickly look a lot different, right? 
sometimes things don't shape up on the field the way we chanted them, the way we sang about them in the school gym. And that can be true after coronations as well. Some kings don't actually last long. Some aren't able to subdue their rebellious neighbors. Just read the rest of the Psalms. They tell us that things don't always go very well out on the field for the king or for the, in the kingdom. In the Psalms, there are plenty of complaints, plenty of questions. Why? Why, God, are my enemies winning? Why am I suffering? Where is your help? Where is your justice? Where is my victory, Lord? Where are you? After all, think about this. The, the book of Psalms and this Psalm in particular, Psalm 2, and all the Psalms were preserved by a people who eventually lost their king and their kingdom altogether. They lost their independence as a people. They went into exile, but still they believed this Psalm. They believed Psalm 2 was true with its boast by God, I have installed my king on Zion. And with its promise to the king, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The exiles just believed they had faith that they must, it must be that they had to wait for these promises to come true. That it, this psalm would come true again in the future someday. This psalm, this promise that, that a Jewish Messiah, an anointed one, verse 2, that's what Messiah means, anointed one, would one day take the throne again and defeat all of his enemies and all of God's enemies and reign forever and ever. And so it's not surprising that later followers of Jesus applied this psalm to Jesus. The Messiah, the conquering king, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords and who one day will rule the nations forever. And so we believe this psalm actually is proving true. That's what we who have put our faith in Jesus believe. And so given all of that background to this psalm, let's look at its message now and see what it has to say for us today. Especially in this moment where we have experienced uncertainty and strife. This time where for some it's been a moment of great relief and others it's been a moment of massive disappointment and disillusionment. This moment of transfer of power the Sunday after a big election. This psalm basically has a three-part message to us. First, people will rebel against God. And against his king, ultimately, they will rebel against Jesus. And that's the real battle that this psalm encourages us to focus on. Can't we all, as followers of Jesus, unify on that? And then second, the world's rebellion won't succeed ultimately. God will help his Messiah put down every rebellion. And then third... The best thing and the wisest thing that anyone can do as a result of the first two points is to give our allegiance to God's king, to Christ. So let's go through these three. First, people will and do rebel against God and his Messiah. 
verses one to three. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his, his anointed, saying, let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. Let's break off the chains of God and his Messiah and throw off their shackles. In other words, the nations are saying, let's rebel, let's break free, let's seek our independence from God's rule and from the Messiah's rule. Why? Why do the nations rebel? Well, partly the answer is obvious. It's because nobody likes to be under the control of somebody else. Everyone wants to call their own shots. They want to be their own bosses. The liberals don't want to be under Republican control. The conservatives don't want the Democrats at the helm. We all want to be free to do things our way, to call our own shots. But I think there's more than that, at least in the case of this psalm. Why in particular do people rebel against God? Why do they rebel against Jesus? It's simple. God's way involves right and wrong. It's morally demanding. Just go back and read Psalm 1, which is part one of this two-part introduction to the Psalms. Psalm 1 is all about meditating on God's law, delighting in God's word, and walking in God's way, the way of righteousness. And many people just don't want to do that. They don't want to follow the way of God or the commands of God. They don't want to obey the word of God. Let me ask you, do Donald Trump and his supporters want to obey the commands of God? Does Joe Biden and his supporters, do they all want to obey the commands of God? Let me ask you an even more pertinent question. Do you want to obey the commands of God? You see, at its root, that's why people rebel against God. They don't want to do God's will. It's been that way ever since Adam and Eve took the fruit in the Garden of Eden. We want to call our own shots not submit to God's will. And so the world rebels. The Republican world rebels. The Democratic world rebels. That's why I said at the beginning, we're focused on the wrong battle and we're rooting for the wrong winner. This psalm reminds us that the battle that ultimately matters most is the battle for or against following God's commands, God's way, Christ's way. Are we doing Christ's will? Are we living out his teaching captured so nicely in the Sermon on the Mount? The upside down way, the way of peacemaking, the way of the meek, the way of love and justice and self-control, the way of service. Or are we going our own way, the way of power, the way of self? That's the battle that matters most. And that's why people rebel against God and against his Messiah, Jesus. Second, though, this psalm assures us that this rebellion won't ultimately succeed, that God will help his anointed king put down every rebel, verses 4 to 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, the rebels. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. 
if God installs you as king, ain't nobody going to topple you off your throne. They tried with Jesus, didn't they? When he started pressing his will as their king in their city, in their temple, pushing people to accept his way, people rebelled against Jesus. In fact, they tried so hard to dethrone Jesus that they killed him. They crucified him. And so what did God do? God just raised him back up and put him back on the throne. (laughs) You can't ultimately dethrone God's king. You can't defeat God. So why are we so worried? Trump can't rebel against God's king forever. Biden can't rebel against Jesus either, not ultimately. Sure, they can try. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus told his followers. But take heart, he continued, for I have overcome this world. And I will reign forever and ever, and my kingdom will never fail and will never end. We're continuing through our psalm, verses 7 to 9. The king now speaks. This is the voice of the newly coronated king. He stepped up to the microphone, so to speak, to give his acceptance speech. And we can hear in these words the voice of Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the psalm. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he says. God said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. In other words, God takes as much interest in the well-being and security and the success of this king and his kingdom as as a father takes in a beloved son. God is completely behind this king, heart and soul. Ask me, God says to his Messiah, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. That's what overseas missions is about, right? Bringing the nations, the ends of the earth into Christ's kingdom and under Christ's reign. And that's what this life is about for us. Seeking first God's kingdom, living for his kingdom. Rejoicing at every expansion of the kingdom, every moment where reconciliation triumphs over strife, where justice overrules oppression. Rejoicing at every belly that gets fed and every lonely child that finds a home, every disease that gets healed. And above all, every lost person who finds their way back to their heavenly father's family through Jesus Christ. Look around the world at all that's good. Look at all the advances in justice and healthcare and peace. Look at all those who have found peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's all part of the process of God giving King Jesus his kingdom. Verse 9, God says to his Messiah, you will break your enemies with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Again, this is pep rally language. In the end, Christ's enemies don't stand a chance. That's the point. Christ will be victorious. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he is Lord. The good news is that before Jesus comes with a rod of iron, he comes first with a word of grace. An invitation to repent of our rebellion, to turn back to God, and to be forgiven, and to join God's side to participate 
in the Messiah's effort to renew all things and to bring his kingdom. And so this leads to the third point of this psalm, which is that the best thing we can do, the smartest thing we can do is give our allegiance to Christ. Verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Listen up, Trump. Wise up, Biden. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Know that you can't win the ultimate battle, which is against Christ. Rebellion is ultimately futile, so bow your knee to your true king. Kiss the son, or he will be angry. Back in that culture, defeated rulers, subservient rulers, would literally kiss the ground at the feet of their victorious Lord. It's a sign of allegiance and submission. It's a concession speech. Realizing that the alternative, verse, uh, second line, sorry, of verse 12 leads to their destruction because third line, his wrath can flare up in a moment. This might better be translated, his wrath will flare up soon because the point isn't that the Messiah is a hair trigger exploder with a huge anger problem and that he's unpredictable. No, the point is that the time is short, that Christ has given us time, the King has given us time to repent and to turn to him and to give him our allegiance. But if we refuse, eventually that time of patience will run out. And when he returns as conquering king, we will be counted among his enemies. And then look at the last line, which is an invitation and a blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the Messiah. That's what the Psalm is pushing us toward ultimately, an invitation to blessing. Why rebel against the best king the world has ever known? And why fight a battle you can't win? Christ is God's king. Christ's kingdom will succeed and it will be wonderful. So why rebel and be destroyed when you can submit and be blessed? That's the folly of the human condition. We think we know better. We think we can do a better job than God, the creator of the world. I struggle with this folly and you struggle with this folly. The human race has struggled with it ever since the Garden of Eden. Somehow we think God's way isn't as good and we'll be happier if we go it on our own. And if you want to know how that's worked out, just look at thousands of years of world history. God wanted to give us a garden paradise to enjoy and to make something beautiful of but we rejected it to figure things out on our own. Thank you very much. And it's been trouble ever since. So come back to your God, the psalmist pleads. Find refuge in the son, the anointed king, God's Messiah. Submit to his good rule. You can't ultimately succeed in rebelling against him anyway. And if you do, it will just lead to your destruction. So choose blessing instead, which is what God's king wants to bring you. So in conclusion, have you been focusing on the wrong battle? If you have been, then you've been rooting for the wrong winner. Neither Republican nor Democrat is ultimately what victory looks like. And neither is the real enemy. 
Both are just flawed, imperfect attempts to fix what's wrong with this world without God's help. And ultimately, to the extent that these parties don't follow God's king, neither will succeed. Sure, there's plenty to be done in this world, politically speaking. I'm not denying that. There's much to be done to bring justice, to extend mercy, to make, help make improvements. Absolutely, elections matter. But for followers of Jesus the King, until we step back and get our minds straight on what the real battle is and what the real winner is, Jesus Christ, we will not be able to participate in God's kingdom with the right spirit and the right perspective. This psalm isn't a promise that everything will go smoothly. After all, Jesus hasn't returned yet to put down those who continue to rebel against him. But what this psalm pictures needs to be more true in our imaginations and in our hearts than all that we see on the nightly news. And when it becomes more true, it will change our attitude and our heart. And we will be able to handle this transition of power with peace and courage and love, yes, even for our enemies, and hope for the future in a way that honors Christ, our King, because Christ is King and he will reign forever. Let's respond by singing now about that King in the song called King of Love. <laughs>